TBS. The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who wants to know what the people behind Defiance are smoking. My co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we will be covering the season finale of Warehouse 13. Dan and Michael will be covering Continuum, and I will return to continue our coverage of Falling Skies. Then, as always, we've got the rundown section with our thoughts on the underwhelming season finale of Defiance, my thoughts on Under the Dome, and Dan's review on another episode in the final season of Burn Notice, and maybe even more, including a voicemail or two. But before all that, we've got news with Nico with some breaking news that just occurred this morning. Breaking news at the time of recording. Glee star Cory Monteth dead at 31. Glee star Cory Monteth was found dead in a Vancouver hotel room Saturday afternoon. He was only 31. A cause of death was not given and foul play was not suspected. According to reports, hotel staff discovered his body after he missed his checkout time. In March, Corey entered rehab for substance addiction, forcing Glee to write him out of season four's final stretch. He made his first public appearance last month when he attended Chrysalis Butterfly Ball Charity Gala in Los Angeles with girlfriend and co-star Lee Michelle. This is clearly unexpected and shocking news. For more information and up-to-date updates, check out the link in our ACC feed. Yeah, this is a unfortunate story. This seems to happen with several actors, and it's always a unfortunate tale to hear when these things happen. And I'm wondering if it's going to affect Glee's appearance at Comic-Con as well. To be honest, I, I, I don't know. I think they had written him out as far as appearances and things because of his own personal right. struggles. So it might not, but it they may just cancel it because of the shock to the cast. Yep. Exactly. But again, sad news. I'm not a big Glee fan, but you hate hearing these type of stories about actors. No, and, and Corey Monteth was a very skilled actor and singer, and to see that skill go right. so early is, is, is a waste, and it's, it's very sad for the whole business and unfortunate. Yeah. And our true. prayers go out to everybody who loved him and was a fan, and especially his family and, and loved ones. And, and the cast of Glee as well. Yep. Natalie Z signs on for the following season two, and yet almost didn't. Claire Matthews is a survivor, or is she? Natalie Z will return to the following for season two after signing an 11th hour deal with the Fox drama. Her comeback, however, could be short-lived. Speaking with TV Guide magazine, Z would not disclose how long she'll be sticking around the Fox thriller, indicating that the near-death events of the first season's cliffhanger could lead to a goodbye arc or a complete new storyline. Z, who will appear on CBS's Under the Dome later this summer, was very close to not returning at all for the following sophomore run, leaving Claire on the chopping block. 
As such, Joe Carroll's ex was set to be killed off at the close of season one. TV Line can confirm that the finale was edited two different ways, but Fox executives pressed to resurrect the character, according to TV Guide magazine sources. So interesting that she almost wasn't brought back, and now there is question on how long she will remain. Of course, this all could be just TV business BS to drum up interest in the show over the hiatus. You be the judge and read the article at the link in the ACC feed. Ah, you know, got hiatus mind games. You gotta yeah. love them. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Some community news. Donald Glover to appear in less episodes in season five. Community may have Dan Harmon back for season five, but now co-star Donald Glover will be spending less time at Greendale this semester. According to Vulture, the actor's reps and Sony TV have worked out a new agreement that will see Glover appearing as Troy Barnes in only five of Community's upcoming 13 episodes. Apparently, this is so Glover can spend more time pursuing his childish Gambino rap career. Word of Glover's reduced schedule comes roughly a month after series creator Dan Harmon inked a deal to return as showrunner after sitting season four out. While this is obviously unfortunate news, I can't wait to see how Dan Harmon explains Troy's absence and can't wait for season five to start. I just hope it doesn't affect Ahmed's character. I hope it turns into good development for Ahmed because I just, I like the Troy and Ahmed thing. That's such a great joke and it always works on the show. To not be able to fall back on it, it'll be interesting to see where the show goes. Yeah, there were some jokes about him getting stuck in a HVAC ducts while cleaning it okay. or fixing it. And then all of a sudden he just shows up again later in the season or that he has to go on a Jehovah's Witness mission or something like that. There, there were a lot of funny things going around as, yeah. as possible reasons for his absence. But ultimately... I think whatever Dan Harmon comes up with is going to be the best. Okay, now that Dan Harmon is back, I feel a little bit better about this situation. Okay. I think if it was where we were last year, they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to have less Troy. I'll be like, oh, oh, this could be bad. But we're good now, I think. In Comic-Con news, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. take over San Diego trolleys. Nice. Comic-Con International lands in San Diego next week, and Andy and I will be attending. And the town trolleys will sport a special new look celebrating Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for the event. Get your first look at the trolleys by following the link in the ACC feed. And if you'll be at Comic-Con International next week, from July 18th to 21st, take a ride for yourself. And are you taking a ride, Nico? I am indeed. I will be parking at a remote location and riding the trolley into the convention center. Cool. So maybe we'll see a photo of Nico on the shield trolley. Absolutely. Or nice. It, I hope so. I hope all of them are shield ones and I don't get the one non-shield one because that's my luck. <laughs> oh, that would stink, man. Quinto says third Star Trek movie may shoot next year. Mr. Spock himself, Zachary Quinto, recently appeared at the Galaxy Film Fleet, where he gave attendees an update on the third film in Paramount's rebooted Star Trek series. Quinto says, Star Trek 3 should be filming, I suppose, next year. It's going to be made a lot quicker than the last Ooh. one. That's the plan, although nothing is confirmed yet. Quinto added that J.J. Abrams still hopes to direct the next Trek movie, but didn't elaborate. This seems highly unlikely to happen, though, as Abrams begins filming Star Wars Episode 7 in early 2014 and will then oversee post-production on that film until its 2015 release. Regardless, this is good news that it seems that Star Trek 3 is getting started quickly and won't 
we won't have to wait multiple years to see it. I just don't want J.J. Abrams to try and do it while doing Star Wars. I just think it's going to be rushed and feel like a mess. Yeah, I agree. So I, I, if he passes on this, I'm cool with it. Because I just I want Star Wars to be done right. I want Star Trek to be done right. Again, Star Trek 3 the last time around, well, <laughs> we all know how that kind of went. So, Well, I could see him still being a very intricate part of it, even if he's not the day-to-day yeah. director. Which is fine. I mean, if he does kind of what John Favreau did with Iron Man 3. Which was very successful. Yeah, that would be fine. Yep. Hulu is no longer for sale. Studios invest $750 million. Despite going up on the market earlier this year, streaming video provider Hulu is no longer for sale. Owners 21st Century Fox, the Walt Disney Company, and NBC Universal announced on Friday that Hulu will remain under their guidance. The companies have also provided an additional $750 million in funding to propel future growth. Reportedly, some potential buyers included cable carriers like Time Warner Cable and DirecTV. Hulu's subscription service, Hulu Plus, has over 4 million members. Yes. This is interesting news. Well, it, would that also include Comcast? That's Comcast owns NBC Universal. Yeah, with the cable carriers. Okay. Yeah, but it's the NBC Universal aspect of the Comcast Corporation that owns Hulu. Okay. Yeah. Sharknado won Twitter, but not the ratings. Sharknado blew people's minds and broke the internet last night. But how did it actually score in the ratings? It didn't have much bite, actually. Get it? The shark exploitation movie only drew 1.4 million viewers and a 0.4 rating in the adult demo. Good for like 50th place on basic cable for the night. But who cares about ratings, right? The movie was guilty of fishing for social media buzz, and it totally worked. Sharknado was a Twitter sensation, generating almost 387,000 mentions during the initial screening, almost as many as Game of Thrones' The Reigns of Castamere, a.k.a. The Red Wedding episode. And that's the kind of publicity that sci-fi was going for. Sci-fi Sharknado, while not the ratings triumph one would assume, broke Twitter last night with more than 600,000 total tweets sent out between 8 p.m. and 3 a.m. spanning all time zones and repeat broadcasts. It united the world through social media, celebrities and regular folk alike, and showed us that everyone can enjoy a crap fest so long as it has A, it was free to watch, mostly, you do have to subscribe to sci-fi, Yeah. B, done on the cheap, that qualifies, and C, starred people who were once famous. Tara Reid, Ian Zygrit, or whoever from 90210. So, yep, all three categories, it fits. Sci-Fi will replay Sharknado next Thursday, and the network is already discussing a Sharknado sequel. This is all everyone else's fault. <laughs> so this is one of those crappy Sci-Fi Channel original movies? Oh my god, this looks so amazing. It's so bad, okay. and yet so I want to watch it. I actually have it on my DVR set up oh, to watch. No. I just haven't had time yet, and I will be watching it tonight. This scares me. I just don't want Sci-Fi Channel to think that they can just get away with making crap programming. Well, this was intentionally crappy. This yeah. is camp at its best. And so I think it was it was definitely intended to be this bad. And for people who enjoy bad movies, yeah. this is everything you want to watch. So this was a and snakes those- on a plane scenario. If every, except for Snakes on the Plane didn't follow that ABC because right. it wasn't free to watch, it wasn't done on the cheap, and it starred people who were still famous right. and not 
once, you know, previously famous. But, so, but it, that movie was intentionally made to be kind of bad. Yes. So this yeah. was intentionally made to be kind of bad. So tone-wise, yeah. it's the same. Very close. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but you you are right. The ABC with this, it's a good move. And again, is, is it start this year that those uh, mentions will turn into ratings for Twitter? No, not, not yet. It will be... In the fall of 2013 is when they're going to start a pilot program. Okay. So it'll just be a test out to see if how that works. So yeah, you're right that it is going to start this fall, but it is not really going to count until uh, later into 2014. Okay, but this is a good test run for sci-fi. You kind of try it out. Yeah, it definitely drummed up social media support and got its name out there. And it was such a cheap budget that really any advertising they could get for it probably broke even, maybe even made them money, especially since 1.4 million viewers is not a bad day for sci-fi. Okay, real quick, what's the plot of the movie? A giant storm comes in towards Los Angeles and sucks up a big portion of the ocean into these tornadoes and then rains sharks down on Los Angeles and flooding and sharks take over the city. That's kind of awesome. Yeah. It's it's cheesy as heck, but awesome. Yep. All right. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Okay, check out Sharknado. But with that, we're going to talk about sci-fi shows on that network that aren't intended to be corny. Again, sometimes they don't always have the best episodes of the show. But I thought this season finale was a big turnaround of a solid episode of the series. Maybe not as good as season finales of the past, but still pretty good. So let's talk about the Warehouse 13 episode, The Truth Hurts. The agents capture Paracelsus, but soon discover that that's exactly what he wants. Meanwhile, Micah goes in for surgery, and Artie tells Claudia a family secret. This year's season finale to Warehouse 13 was good, but not the frantic leave-you-on-the-edge-of-your-seat race to save the world that we've experienced with past finales on this show, or even this year's mid-season finale. I don't know if I felt this way because the middle of the season tended to sag, or if they resolved Nick and Sutton's storyline in this episode without really a decent confrontation between Paracelsius and his brother, which made James Marster's appearance in this episode feel wasted, at least in my opinion. However, what succeeded in giving this episode the sense of urgency we expect from a season finale was Pete and Micah's storyline, where an opportunity for Micah to be cured of her cancer revealed that she was dying. Because surprisingly with this scenario, the focus was put on Pete instead of Micah. Although, this turned out to be the right move on the writer's part, because it went back to the plot threads of Pete losing his dad and Micah losing her partner to deliver some deep emotional scenes between Pete and Micah that Warehouse has cowered away from in the past. In addition, Pete had to be the main focus of this episode, because it was the only way to set up the showdown that acted as the finale cliffhanger, which had some events leading up to it that could have been done a little bit better, but we'll get to that in a moment. But first, I want to ask Nico some questions about my thoughts on this finale. Starting with, how did this episode stack up against the warehouse finales of the past for you? Dan, as you mentioned, this finale obviously did not live up to the previous ones in the action department or the intensity of saving the world. But that did not mean that it did not live up to that level of intensity on the emotional level. While the three previous season finales were action-packed, save the world sort of episodes, this one was a more emotional save Micah and the warehouse in general sort of episode that I think will be carried over to the final six episodes of season five. So in that sense, I think it was a very good emotional impact episode and set us up for very good stuff in in the next season 
Right, and it also it's it's got us asking questions about next season and where things are going to go. Yeah, exactly. And I really think that in the episode returning, the premiere, we're going to get a lot more of the action we want in this episode. I think you're right. Yeah, because I, I think with season three, it was a big buildup in the to the cliffhanger and then the second part coming back wasn't so i mean exciting i guess and now it seems like they've learned that lesson and they're kind of they dialed it back in this episode so the premiere back can be really explosive can kick off that final season with a bag i agree now with this episode though it seemed like they wrapped things up with nick and son in that story by going on about them being forced to become immortal and then being cured again and and you know the, the mother dying and stuff did you think that Marsters was underused could how they resolved all this nico yeah dan i felt that this was yeah. a major letdown in that department but at the same time i also feel like they left it open to bring them back next season if need be to have that okay. final showdown between the brothers but at the same time i sort of felt like they were setting it up to have the claudia and paracelsus showdown be the ultimate battle for the warehouse so they had to get sutton out of the way to ensure that it was claudia going up against him rather than Sutton. Could you see in the premiere coming back, Pete seeking out Sutton to maybe help him get back on the warehouse? I, I could see that, but I don't know if the, Sutton's going to have any insight into that other than right. what were some of your brother's weaknesses or anything like that. That might be it, but I just, I don't know. I think they wrote him out of the story and they might be gone for good. Yeah, that's that's possible. And I, I think that would be okay, especially for Nick's part of the story because the intention was to make him mortal so he could grow up. So he got that and I mean, that's a pretty good wrap up there. But in terms of using a great actor like Marsters, didn't go so hot. And speaking of storylines in this episode, Nico, did you feel the storyline that took place between Pete and Micah revolving around her surgery? Got Pete's fear of losing her was the best part of the episode. I mean, I certainly felt that way. Got uh, Did you think the pacing of this finale worked for you with the warehouse team catching the bad guy? Got their personal drama kind of being what gave Paracelsius come the upper hand? Yeah, the pacing was fine, Dan. And I did like that it was Pete's fear of being abandoned again by Micah dying on him that led to him to release Paracelsus. Indeed, the Pete and Micah story arc this week was the best part of the episode and really the only thing from this episode that I really cared about emotionally. Sure, the Mrs. Frederick being separated from the warehouse was interesting, but did not hit me emotionally, nor did Claudia staying behind to take on Paracelsus from the inside while the rest of the team fight him from the outside. Though that will make for some of the best action next season, ultimately the emotional heart lied in the Pete and Micah story. Yeah, because that's the story we don't really know how things are going to work out right now. Right. It's the most up in the air. Where, you know, Claudia, though, setting up for that showdown, that was cool. Yeah. I mean, something we knew was going to happen, but it was cool. And Mrs. Frederick, we've always kind of had this vibe that she's going to die at some point. So I think that's why we weren't as so attached to that. It might have been why they just didn't kill her, because it wasn't as impactful enough. I don't know. But going back to uh, Perselsius and that big final battle, really, I didn't feel Warehouse wasted the acting talents of Anthony Stewart-Head at all, like they did with James Marsters. Because I really felt that they, this episode infused Perselsius' madman persona with the warm fatherly-like figure, which made an actor like Anthony Stewart-Head famous for his taster choice coffee commercials, get play Giles on Buffy. And it was cool how he, great acting, how he used this persona to trick Pete into giving him full control over the warehouse under the pretense of saving Micah's life. 
Now, with that being said, I know Pete's supposed to be a big kid, but I felt they took it a little too far this scene by just how gullible he was to believe Percelsius, despite Anthony Head's great performance. I mean, the performance was great. Micah was dying. I get why Pete had to say to do what he did, but just the way it was done, I just, I don't know, it felt like a little kid, like, now if I do this, will this save her? You know, felt like a five-year-old asking a lot of questions, I guess. I guess that's the best way to describe that scene. But, Again, Pete is a trained Secret Service agent, and I just feel like he should have been skeptical of Percelsius from the get-go, or at least had a vibe about it. So, Nico, I mean, do you think that the director or writers of this episode should have had Eddie McClintock play this scene differently as Pete, or maybe use the character's desperation to save Micah to give Percelsius control of the warehouse in a different fashion? Yeah, Dan, I do think they should have shown this his desperation to save Micah in a different light. Right. While this way indeed made Paracelsus a more powerful and strong villain, it hurt Pete's character characterization by making him so gullible and was inconsistent with his character's abilities, namely having a vibe and being able to trust his gut. I think it would have been more powerful if he had knowingly released Paracelsus to save Micah and he had been able to save Micah, but may have lost the warehouse in the process rather than the possibility of losing both by being tricked. I think this was a great disservice to the character and all of us that love him for being that big kid character, but also a damn fine secret service and warehouse agent. Yeah. I think it was a mistake. I do too. I mean, I I feel like they, they had to have, that scene it just could have been done differently really it just mm. I, I was i'm a big fan of pete so it was just frustrating for me now with the vibe thing though there were so many bad things going on at the time i wonder if he just couldn't peg what it was like ultimately i think the vibe was warning him about percelsius but with micah dying and mrs frederick dying and the warehouse going haywire i, I was i'm wondering if he just couldn't pinpoint where the vibe was coming from yeah i think they're more immediate okay you know We've seen in the past, it's like right before something happens, he gets a vibe. So like right before he went to release or to use the stone, yeah, he should have gotten a major wicked vibe. And he didn't. Right. Okay. So that was a little off. But again, the characterization between Kim and Micah was so good that it just was weird to see it just his characterization fall apart in this scene. It was almost like the writer got tired. He was like, oh yeah, I did it so well here. I'm just going to take a break now. And you got to keep going with it, guys. Come on. But that also might be why, you know, the show's ending is that they're running out of steam to keep it going. Who knows? But anyway, another surprise about this episode was how Mrs. Frederick lived to fight on another day despite Percelsius revival deteriorating her connection to the warehouse. Guys, Claudia took the role of caretaker, setting up a big showdown between her and Percelsius that we have to wait for until 2014. Man, that's a long time to wait. But in my opinion, I think having Mrs. Frederick stay alive was the best way to go. Because if she died, it could probably be the end of Warehouse 13, which I don't think should happen until the series finale. At the same time, I'm on the fence about Claudia being the one to ultimately defeat Percelsius because I think Pete should be given the opportunity to make up for his grave mistake like he promised everyone at the end of the episode. Also with the jury still being out on if Joanne Kelly is coming back to play Micah next season and Claudia's thought to be dead sister being set up as the big bad of the final season. I'm wondering if in the end Warehouse 13 is ultimately going to end up as a story about a girl growing up into the protector of the world's most powerful secrets. And even though I'm a big Claudia fan, I'm not sure if I like this change in direction. Because I feel that 
if this show started as two secret service agents protecting the world from dangerous artifacts, it should end with two secret service agents protecting the world from dangerous artifacts. So, Nico, were you surprised about Mrs. Frederick surviving this episode? And does this signify a shift in focus on the show from Pete and Micah to Claudia? Yes and no. Yes, I was surprised in the way they dealt with the Miss, Mrs. Frederick aspect of the story, but I felt that it was handled perfectly to set up the final season and not rush the development of Claudia as the caretaker. No, I do not think that this shows a fundamental shift in the focus of the show from Pete and Micah to Claudia. Claudia has always been an important part of the story, and she may be the main focus of much of the final season, but Pete and Micah will be the ultimate focus of the series and the finale. I predict that their story will be wrapped into the series finale and the ultimate saving of the warehouse or the transition to the warehouse 14 in the series finale. Thus, while Claudius' caretakership will be a major focus of season 5, it will not mean that the show has made a fundamental shift from Pete and Micah. Yeah, and I really think this business about Joanne Kelly not coming back this season, and that was a news story that a friend of mine told me about, I think that's just more hiatus mind games, kind of like yeah, what they're doing with the following. But I don't think it's coming out of the sci-fi camp or out of the warehouse right. camp. I think it's coming from just fans speculating that she's not coming back. They did the same thing when she decided to leave being a warehouse agent. They yeah. said she wasn't coming back, she was leaving the show, and we all know that that was BS right. and that she was back in the next episode so i think i i've actually seen photographic evidence that she is in the next series so or in the next season so well, it's six episodes i mean right yeah i mean it, it'd be silly not to finish it well they're already in production right now and they're shoot they've been shooting and doing table reads and everything like that and Eddie McClintock has posted out video, or not video, uh, photos of him and Joanna Kelly together on set. So, you know, yeah, we know she's at least in the in the first episode. And if she's going to be in the first episode, why not the final five? I think the cancer arc will still be going, though. Oh, yeah. I think she'll wake up from surgery. They're going to say it's bad. And then it's going to be about them dealing with that. I agree. Yeah. And they might, and they may say that it looks bad right now, but there's still a chance that she could survive. And then I think she ultimately will in the end, but we'll see. But in addition to that prediction, I think that in the fifth and final season of Warehouse 13, after duking it out, get a showdown, utilizing various artifacts, Claudia is going to defeat Perselsius, getting her sister's attention, making Claire the sister, the big bad of season five. At the same time, Michael will probably end up having her cancer maybe completely removed in that surgery or they're going to take care of that down the road. Meaning that Pete's bad vibes in this episode were coming from Perselsius, not the idea of Micah dying. Although I think after finding out about the mistake Pete made trying to save her life, Micah's going to be upset with him for a little bit, setting up a situation where I think Pete must stop Claire's evil plan in the end in order to redeem himself with Claudia and everyone and uh, win a romance with Micah, where they might leave the warehouse to be together, leaving Steve and Claudia to take over, probably with Artie still mentoring them, maybe. Also, as for who might play Claudia's sister's Claire, I went with, I predicted, Allison Mack. Because if this show could pull off an evil version of Giles with Perselsius, then they could certainly pull off an evil version of Smallville's Chloe Sullivan, who I believe to be the precursor to Claudius' character. So, Nika, what are some of your predictions for the final season of Warehouse? And can you see Allison Mack play Claudius' sister Claire? I think we're going to be debating that one. 
Yeah, Dan, I sort of mentioned some of my predictions already, but I like yours as well. I do see Pete and Micah have, having a row or a fight about his actions, but I also see it as the motivator or reason that their feelings are revealed. I could see him saying something like, I couldn't lose you, Micah. I just couldn't lose you because I love you. Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, mu- much more eloquently yeah. put, of course. I'm not a writer. And it could be but, comedic, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also... I don't see them getting Allison Mack to play Claudia's sister, Claire. Rather, I see them getting someone a little more mainstream known. Allison Mack is well known to the fanboys, but in the mainstream, not so much. For instance, I know that Rebecca Mader has been cast for a super secret role next season, although they are currently claiming it is only for a single episode. But we know that information is always tightly held and often is lied about by showrunners. So she could be a major story arc or major episode arc and could be uh i could easily see her as claudia's sister claire so i guess we'll kind of have to wait till next spring to be sure but i sort of can't believe that we have to wait that long for the final six episodes i i agree with you on the mainstream known idea that maybe that's what they need to go with the actress if they can afford it i said allison mack because i didn't think they could afford that but if you go in more mainstream I can see that, but I, I don't know about Rebecca Mader. I see her being on Warehouse 13. She certainly fits on the show with her track record on being a lot of sci-fi shows, but I don't know if I see her as a sister. But then they may sell me over when she shows up as the sister, so we'll see. Okay. Yeah, I just I knew that she was coming for season five, and I knew she would be part of those last six episodes. And when they started making it a very secretive casting, I thought, oh, she's got to be then, right? But it could just be part of whatever they're going to do in those last six episodes. And maybe she is only scheduled to do one episode. Yeah, plus I I feel like that's pretty obvious to say she's on there with this reveal being happening in this episode. You know, it it seems just too much of a a giveaway for a news article, but maybe that's just me. Okay. Yeah, we'll see. We'll talk about that when it happens. In 2014, and that's a long time to wait. But I guess it's better to wait than know it's over. So that'll be fine. All right. So are you ready to move on to talking about the other sci-fi show that we might make all sorts of predictions about? Yeah, let's go ahead and jump into Falling Skies with the seventh episode of the season, The Picket Line. A road trip mission turns dangerous for the Masons when a family of outlaws intercepts them. Meanwhile, the construction of an alien weapon comes with doubts and conflicts. Got an investigation to catch a killer is jeopardized. All right, so with this week's Falling Skies, there was a little bit of turmoil at Charleston. As Pope was not happy because he was asked by the new president, Peralta, to move his bar and his food truck and all of his financial endeavors he has at Charleston, and he was not too happy about that. And this kind of caused him to vent his frustration and say that the government in Charleston was falling apart. And he did kind of rant a little bit about Tom leaving the city behind because he knew that was going to happen. And Tom even talks to Ben about this in the opening of the episode. And I just can't believe he wants to leave it behind after fighting side by side with the second mass and how close he is with Weaver. I can't believe you just leave him there to go down on a sinking ship. Because that's what it seems like he wants to do, because he's just tired of fighting and all the drama it's creating for his family. And I think Ben, because even having a hard time accepting that, see that his spikes allow him to almost be a big hero or a you know, very important part of the war effort. And so it's interesting where they're going with this. And Nico, what's your thoughts on it? 
Yeah, I don't really think that it's that he's abandoning Charleston because he thinks it's going to fail or that it's going down. Because if you saw later in the episode, they were pleading with that other family, and we'll talk about them in a minute. Yeah, we were t- They were pleading with them and talking with them and telling them how much of a great thing Charleston was and how people worked together and that they didn't have to be alone. So I believe that the Mason family still believes in the idea of Charleston. I think they're just worried that because of Alexis being half alien half human or you know at least partially alien that that she would not be accepted there and that's the only reason i think the masons are even considering leaving charleston because it's going to be not inviting them back you know or not inviting place when they get back so i don't think that was anything to do with them thinking that it's a going you know a ship going down like pope thought it was i think that they realized that there really might not be a place for them in charleston anymore Yeah, that makes sense. But I do foresee some of the boys wanting to go back. Oh, I think even Tom will want to go back. I think he'll think that it's going to be just not safe for his family. Okay. Because, I mean, I just see Ben wanting to go back because he wants to help. You know, he wants to be a part of the war effort. So I see him going back there. And then I see Hal wanting to go back for Maggie. Right. And maybe it's a matter of going back and testing the waters, but realizing that they're not welcome or that Alexis would not be welcome. And so the boys go back with the idea that they'll meet up with Tom and Anne later. This is all assuming that they all make it through the next couple episodes unscathed and find Anne and Alexis is still alive or whatever. But I I do think that's where it's going. Yeah, because I mean, I just feel like someone like Ben is the hero of the story or one of the big heroes of the story. So it would make sense he's going to go back and want to try to fight for the city because he knows people don't like him because of the spikes, but he's kind of accepted it. Right. And so there's that but then we have another character who's got his whole dilemma and might not be good to go back to Charleston for because just because of the influence that's being put on him. And that's Matt, as it felt like he seemed to be having some of those berserker tendencies because he ended up shooting first, got asked questions later regarding the outlaw family that basically stole the Mason's stuff. And he ends up shooting the uncle of the family, basically in the chest, and he dies. And so do you think, Nico, this is from Matt being around Pope and those guys? that he's picking up those tendencies yeah it's a possibility i think he saw his brother in a life or death battle with that knife you know and how yeah. was not initial you know he wasn't able to just initially disarm him and take care of it so i think yeah he probably didn't need to shoot him it would have probably been better to maybe a warning shot or something but right Matt has very little experience being anything more than just a gopher on the battlefield. Yeah, he carries a gun and he's technically a soldier in the second mass or whatever Charleston's army is called now. And he has gun experience, but he doesn't have real combat experience. So when he saw his brother being in a life or death struggle, he thought, I got to help him. And he shot him. And... It's probably not what Ben or Tom would have done. They probably would have done the the warning shot, like I said. But it wasn't completely wrong. 
It just right. wasn't the best thing to do. Yeah, or or they wouldn't have killed the guy. That's the the main part. And yeah, it's probably that's an experience. And I think yeah. that training will come out. And he may even do it around the berserkers or somebody, and even or even Pope. And Pope may be like, "Okay, kid, that's too far." Because you have to remember, Pope does have a certain degree of morality. Like even in this episode, even though he said Charleston's a sinking ship, I don't think he really wants to see that happen. Right. He's just saying, "Okay, people, you need to look out." Kind of again, that's what we talked about last week about how he's basically commentating on everything that's going on in the show like we are. And speaking of contrasts and characters' motives and what they're doing and what direction they're going, I really like the contrast to this episode between the Mason family, kind of the family of outlaws, as it seemed like the Mason's hatred towards the aliens for them basically being responsible for, you know, the mother or Tom's wife's death inspired them to fight the aliens. And basically the outlaws' hatred of humans because something happened regarding the invasion where the mother of that family was killed by humans inspired them to hide and stay out of the way because they just didn't trust humanity based on the way some people reacted in response to the alien invasion. But the family of outlaws kind of got redeemed in this episode. They kind of worked out their differences. And I think we might see a little more of them next week. And they may make up for more of their negative actions by maybe helping Matt, Cal, and Ben save Tom with it now appearing that he was captured at the end of the episode. I don't know. I mean, the actor that played the father of the family, Christopher Hydrothal, I think that's how to pronounce his last name, because a big, yep. well-known sci-fi actor. He was on Sci-Fi Sanctuary and several other shows and movies as well. And so I see him being a multi-episode character. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I actually mentioned when I, I heard his voice, I knew who the actor was, even though he was wearing a mask. So yeah, yeah I think you're on to something here. But I also think that they could go the route that they actually are working with the aliens. And that's how they've survived by luring people to the cabin and then the aliens get. But we've already seen that story arc. So right. I kind of do hope that they are just this family hiding. And then Matt Hell and Ben have to come and save tom and this family offers to help or helps yeah and the only thing about that storyline i thought it was well done i just thought we would get more out of the daughter being the voice of reason i know that's a cliche tv thing to do but i just thought we were gonna get more out of that see i was not really happy with this story arc though i felt like it was a lot of going back and forth who had the upper hand and that was just sort of ridiculous you know it was it, it should have switched hands one time and yeah and if be done with it and if they're on again next week it's going to be done there's yeah. not going to be switching sides yeah i was just frustrated with that i thought it was really bad yeah. so yeah. It's, it's like the one somewhere. thing i haven't liked about this show and that's pretty impressive going this far into the series well i don't know the alien baby's kind of pushing it but... yeah that's true that's true i forgot about maybe that'll get fixed we can only hope right right <laughs> Okay, going back to Charleston, which was the good stories of this week, the good plotline stuff, Cochique seemed to give us more evidence that the Vollmer allies, or at least he's an ally, by it appearing that he saved the president's life following the plane crash that took place a few episodes ago. But even though he gave a good explanation about what the alien weapon is supposed to do later on in the episode with Peralta, finally convinces him to show it to them. I still believe there's going to be some sort of catch to it. Yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not, it's hard to read because I do think Cochise is an ally, but I'm not yeah. sure what the deal is and whether they just don't trust the humans 100% to give them all the information and maybe it is something that can be easily explained Yeah, but I do think there is a problem and we saw another preview of Tom looking like he is pre-war appearance so maybe the feedback that they talked about 
in how to bring down the net, maybe it causes a mass hallucination sort of matrix style thing. thing and only certain people are able to break out of it on their own, much like Neo and the Matrix did. Yeah. So maybe Tom is caught up in this so pre-war life Matrix. and he's yeah. only the one, one of the few that realizes something's not right because every time he looks in the mirror, he sees his bearded, war-torn self rather than the clean-shaven professor that everybody else sees. Interesting. Well... That could play out really interesting. And right now, the way I'm understanding the weapon works, Kaniko, clarify me if I'm wrong on it. Basically, they're going to, the aliens are going to activate the net, the fishettes. Yep. And that's going to burn the planet. And then what's going to happen is when they do that, the Volm, they're going to fire off their machine, and it's going to overload the grid, taking out all the aliens. Not taking out all the aliens, but it's going to take out all of the relay stations for the containment field or the dome or whatever okay. they're they're surrounding and so it'll knock out all of those and destroy their defense shield and then when the volm arrive they'll take uh, out everybody else yeah the asheni will not be protected behind a essentially like what they did to hoth in yeah. star wars where they had the energy shield around all of hoth until the bombardment started right okay that makes sense but we don't know if that's really what it's going to do still Right. We're not <laughs> sure if it's actually going to work that way or right. if it's going to be what causes the mass hysteria or not mass hysteria, but mass hallucinations and the belief that they're in the pre-war world. Yes. Well, I'll try saying that 10 times fast. Uh, yeah. A lot of use. Well, it seems like there's much more imperative fishes to fry right now or more immediate things to deal with. Good Charleston. As Lord is, is revealed to be the dreaded mole. Or I guess the second mole. And I want to say that the aliens took control of her in season two when they lost track of that bug that everyone was paranoid that infected Tom Mason. Does that line up right to you? Yeah, except for that we thought that we saw it fly away. Okay. But maybe there were more than one and when they pulled it out one went into her. Well, it seemed like she was infected with multiple yeah based on what we saw and i don't know if that means they could save her that's uh, gonna be an interesting thing as well yeah plus wasn't that the only one they had the only anti-bug they had yes okay so that's a problem too maybe the rebel skitters could end up getting more or bringing more to them if they needed it we don't know what the supply level is but now the one guy's dead isn't he yeah but i think red eye is still alive okay so that wasn't red eye that was a different no uh he was he was one of the ones with the painted face. Okay. Yeah. Because I lose track of which one's which sometimes. So, okay. So he was just a, a scout with the group. Okay. But I'm pretty sure that coming down the road, I think the second saboteur is going to be found out now that we have a formation of a team between Weaver and Pope, or at uh -huh. least that was alluded to at the end of the episode. And I also see maybe Maggie and Anthony joining in on that party. Yep. Again, that's going to depend on if the mole doesn't get to Anthony first, which I really hope doesn't happen. I like that character. We talked about how important it is for this show to bring those side characters to the forefront more so. Yes. Can they have a great opportunity to do so? So don't do that by killing Anthony. So hopefully that'll all work out. Ken, I did like to be separate this week. Yeah, very much so. Well, we predicted that it would be good for the show, and I think it was very much. I just didn't like the family right. drama thing going back and forth between the two, taking control of the guns. But I think it greatly improved the Charleston plotline. Oh, very much so. Not that it wasn't bad already. I mean, I mean, not that it was bad, but they made it a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. But then again, I just don't, I don't see this team stopping with just finding out the mole. Because I think they could stage a coup to prevent the Volm from firing their weapon because they discovered an unknown side effect of the device.
again, they might not succeed in stopping that because Nico's theory has them because everyone would be put inside of a, a matrix, I guess. But you never know. Right. But, I mean, do you see a coup happening with that sort of thing? I think it's a possibility, although we've already seen that sort of thing happen when Tom and the Second Mass sort of took over last season when Manchester was going a little overboard. Right. So maybe not. Maybe it's going to be a human uprising where Peralta clears it and they go in to, you know, stop it. Maybe. Can I really, I kind of hope that Coach Cheeks and some of the Vaughn aren't bad. Like they're getting played a little bit too. Yeah, I do hope that Cochise is on our side. I like the character. I like everything we've seen from him. And I kind of liked his origin story, you know, that he was born on a ship in the middle of this battle that he's been fighting his entire life, that he's been essentially bred to fight. And I think it would be awful if it turns out that he's actually another villain. Yeah, I, I think you need a good alien on the show. I think you need good aliens and bad aliens. I, I like that idea, especially with this the rebel skitters, you know, essentially ter- changing sides yeah. and being looking to be freed from their their oppressors. And I, I really like that idea. God, the good thing going in our favor is Spielberg likes good aliens better than bad aliens. <laughs> right. So hopefully it'll come through for for coaching. Plus, I like Doug Jones. He's a good guy. He's, yeah. I mean, he's awesome with costumes and stuff. So keep him on the show because if he's a bad guy, they may have to kill him off. So that would stink too. All right. Well, I think that sums it up for Falling Skies. Looking forward to next week's episode still. Hopefully things for the Masons storyline will pick up a little bit. It maybe will. It might get a little alien weird depending on what happens to Tom, but we'll see. So good stuff. Kanika, were you happy with it? I was. I was. Good deal. All right. So let's move on to Michael joining the party now for us to discuss the continuum episode, Second Truths. Kira's knowledge of a serial killer she studied back in 2077 endangers her partnership with Carlos. Alec pursues a relationship with Emily. Kellogg begins recruiting for Sad Tech. The mysterious Mr. Escher makes an appearance. Alright, so we're here talking about episode 6 of Continuum Season 2. God, with the last two episodes of Continuum being sci-fi heavy, a more police-centered story about catching a serial killer was a nice change of pace. Because I liked how Kira studying this case back in 2077 addressed the issues of her constantly lying to Carlos about being a time traveler. So to start things off here on this discussion, Michael, did you like how they brought Kira's problems with keeping secrets from Carlos to a head of this episode? Were you surprised that the conflict boiled to a point where Kira revealed she was a time traveler? Well, yeah. I mean, Dan, you and I have talked about this over the last few weeks, saying that we thought Carlos was ready. And at this point in the series, we thought that Kira needed someone other than Alec, especially someone she's working so close to, uh, to know her secret and to know where she's from and to know why she knows certain things. And if anyone, that would obviously be Carlos as they work together on a daily basis. I I really did like that Kira's problems were brought um, to a head in this episode and the fact that everything is catching up with her. I, I did like that. And especially that scene at the end where she starts telling him everything and she's just melting down because it's finally catching up to her. Because although she has cybernetic parts in her technically with her CMR and her suit and her weapons and what whatnot, she is still human. Yeah. And... And as a human, as, and as a mother, and as a wife, 
no matter if she's a cop or not, she's going to eventually have an emotional breakdown. All mothers do. Yeah. All wives do. It just it happens. All people do. I, and that's not even a female thing. That's that's everybody. That happens to everybody, especially if you were in a situation like this. So I, I was I was very pleased with where they went with this episode. Yeah. I mean, I kind of thought that they had done that last week with the onboard psychiatrist. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess it did feel a little odd because of that. Uh, and I did like Alessandro Giuliani being on the show, by the way. That was awesome. Yeah. But – and yeah, and I do, I do agree with that. But at the same time, you almost need someone that she trusts as opposed right. to a program that's running through her head because that program can't sympathize with her. Right. Well, I, Carlos would have looked stupid if he hadn't found out by this point. Right. I mean, he was it's, getting to the point where about Lois Lane and Clark Kent, him being Superman, she she looks stupid if she didn't figure it out okay. at some point. Right. Yep. That's exactly what I was thinking. Totally Lois Lane scenario. Just you look stupid, and we all know when characters go for too long without finding out the main character's secret, that that could be disastrous. So I think they timed it just right. Yes. That's Smallville. <laughs> yes. Okay. I'm really focusing on other characters actually do know what's going on. I thought Alec fit into this episode nicely with his new girlfriend, Emily, forcing him to deal with the same issues, the same trust issues Kira was having with Carlos. But in every scene Alec shared with his new girlfriend, I really had this bad feeling in the pit of my stomach that either something bad was going to happen to her or she was working for Liberate. And it turned out I was kind of right because Emily made a phone call to some mysterious employer saying she got into Alex's lab, but she might not be a bad guy because she could be working for the mysterious Mr. Escher, who seems to be on Kira's side at this point. At least I think so. So, Michael, who do you think Emily is working for? Do you think that Alec discovering that she was a spy will lead to uh, his character being darkly paranoid in season three? (laughs) Uh... Escher is definitely a safe bet, Dan. I, I, I wouldn't rule him out by any means. I'm sure he's the he is the prime candidate at this point. I was possibly thinking she's working for a rival time traveler who knows that Escher is on Kira's side and knows that Alec is on Kira's side and maybe wants to bring Alec over to his. Interesting. I don't know. That That's neither here nor there. All I can say about this Emily character right now, though, is she – it's right in your face. She reminds me – she reminds me of Riley from Terminator the Sarah yeah, Connor. That's what I was thinking. Like that I mean it's it's right there. Like you should have just got the same actress to play her cuz it's okay. the exact same character. But but I mean will this lead Alec uh, to becoming dark and paranoid in the next season? I'm not really sure about that because I mean if you look at how John Connor reacted to Riley in Terminator, I, I I feel that Alec is a strong enough character to where that would be the road he went down, right. where he became more of the leader as opposed to his mother, or in this case, Kira, maybe. Yeah, and basically, just so everyone knows, for those of you who might have not watched Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Which you should. Basically, Riley was a character that was sent to spy on John Connor, and that was sent to spy on him by a rival time traveler. So basically, the same theory Michael's thinking here with Continuum took place could actually happen on Terminator. And with the eerie similarities 
between this show and Terminator, I would not be surprised if that's where it goes. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how it goes, which direction it takes Alec. Because there is still this possibility that the guy he is in the future is a bad guy. This well, might and- be what turned him dark side. Exactly. Well, and as much as this show is about Kira, it's also about who Alec is and yeah. who he was in the future and who he's going to become in this new timeline. Right. It really is just as much about him as it is about Kira, and I don't think people necessarily see that as much, but it is. Oh, yeah. I mean, most definitely. I mean, it's about the two of them. Got how they're intertwined with each other and their, I guess, relationship. Got Fred's everybody. Yeah, not nothing yeah. more. <laughs> okay, now, speaking of Escher, is it possible that he's the mysterious freelancer? I think he is a freelancer. Okay. And I've talked about that before. I think he is a freelancer. I'm not sure if he is the freelancer. Well, we have several theories on who we think the freelancer is. Yeah. Because we think the freelancer could be a separate entity. It could be Jason, or it could be Gardner. Yeah. Who we also thought could possibly be Kira's son in the future. Yes. But I thought we kind of debunked that, didn't we? Yeah, we kind of did. But but it's still out there. You never know. I I forgot why we said it didn't work. I forgot, too. I'd have to go back. I think that's like two episodes ago. Yeah, it's something just because his obsession, it wouldn't make sense if it was his mother. Yeah, it was just, it didn't all add up for us. Yeah. But don't rule it out, because on this show, I'm not ruling anything out. Well, I mean, right now, my, my theory on how he's a freelancer is that he hired Dylan because of knowledge he has from the future. And it seems like he's capable of knowing how to change history or wanting to change history based on Kellogg's shock that the scientist he wanted to hire went with Prion, which is Escher's company, instead of Tech which I guess history said, or the history book said, he was supposed to do. I mean, Kellogg said, I know the future, this is what happens. It's a done deal, and this week his sports almanac failed him. And he yeah. didn't get the guy. Which, by the way, I started playing the Back to the Future game on my iPod, because they have it for free now, that game that they released. It's actually really addicting. Yes. Because that the game where you like click stuff and use like things you pick up and collect. Yeah. To like do it. Yeah, the story's pretty good. It is, and the acting is great. I love it. Well, they got Christopher Lloyd in it. I know. I know. It's awesome. Yeah, you, you got to check it out. The the the, end, the final episode is really cool, Michael. Okay. If yeah, I got there. I got to keep playing. I got to find a day where I can just sit down and play it all day, all the way through. Yeah. So I got that's a major sidebar. Well, maybe not because we're talking about time travel. No, it's it's still time travel. It's yeah. not major. <laughs> Go check it out. It's fun. Uh, but, I mean, this, this is weird that Kellogg got faked out. And I don't think Escher is on Kellogg's side. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> Clearly, they're rivals. I, I don't know what Escher's game is, though. That's what I'm trying it. to figure out. Yeah. I don't... Well, he's kind of come in from out of left field at this point. But he was at the begin. He was in the pilot. Well, he was mentioned. Yeah. I, can I, I really forgot about that. I did, too. I really did. Because there, there was so much other... Because I thought it was Alec. I thought it was Alec or Kellogg who had done that for Akira, but I guess not. Yeah, the, the other thing with that is it's such a... Uh, it was such a side thing in season one. We were so focused on Liberate and right. Akira getting back to her family. What was going on with Carlos? 
that all this stuff got brushed off to the side. But now I think it could come more to the forefront because there's less conflict within the police station because now she's sided with Carlos. Well, and that and that Dylan is also gone now. Yes. And Gardner kind of takes up any police station stuff that they had. Yeah. And we figured out who is the mole for Liberate. Right. But they haven't figured that out yet, so that's another thing that they've right. got to tackle. We know. They don't know. But do we know she's for sure working for Liberate? Yes, we do, because she called the techie yeah. guy, did she? That's yeah, right. and she got the car with him. Right. Okay. I was getting that confused with Emily, because Emily, we didn't see who she was right. working for. Yeah, it's Emily, we did. don't know. Maggie, we do. That's her name, right? Maggie? Or is it Molly? Who? Uh, the girl in the office. The hacker girl. Go, uh, Betty. Betty, that's it. Betty is her name, yes. Wow, that was odd. Yeah, whatever. I, you know, too much time travel talk. Yes. Well, so do you have any predictions on how you think Escher fits into the story, or are you kind of dumbfounded right now? My question is, is Escher somehow related to Alec, Kira, or even Carlos? And if he is, is he from the past, present, or future? God, there's also the possibility he could be related to Kira's husband and stuff, too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think it would be more interesting if he was from a different time period. Well, what if this guy is Kira's son? Oh, that's kind of nuts. That would be why he would protect her so much. Yeah. God would know so much, knew knew who to contact to get through to her, to get her to meet with him. Mm Mm-hmm. With tracking down Dylan and stuff. I don't know. It it would be interesting. Again, guys, we're not saying any of this is true or false. Yeah. But it's interesting with time travel and time travel theories because literally just about anything is possible. Yeah, and I I like that he's – I like that Dylan's sticking around too. He's a good character. I I hope he doesn't go away. It would be interesting if they did something more with him, like made him somehow a time traveler, and that's why he protected Kira. But, I mean, I don't know. Well, we had an inkling that he knows everything that's going on. Well, I mean, it's just like Commissioner Gordon. Yeah. He, he knows, or Perry White, even. He he knows what's right in front of him, but he's never going to say it outright to his face. Exactly. Well, all in all, I mean, I thought this was a really well-executed episode of Continuum. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially when Carl, it came to Carlos, discovering Kira as a time traveler. Again, I thought there was a little too much crying from Kira. Got the end of the episode. I mean, I get it last week when she was talking to the hologram. Got her son. Got all of that stuff. Because she kind of had to act like a mother in this scene. But I think, like, as a soldier, kind of cop, you wouldn't want to show vulnerability in front of a fellow cop. I don't know if that's just me. But I think think Carlos is more than a cop or a partner to her. He's really a friend. And they've really stuck their necks out for each other over the last two years. That is true. And and I do think that there's something building between them. Not necessarily a love relationship. That's not necessarily what we want. But but there is a mutual respect and friendship there. Yeah. And I, and I think that – and again, going back to Terminator, it's almost kind of like a Sarah Connor, Derek Reese thing. It's not a love relationship. It's not something, nothing like that. But they have a respect for each other and, and – in a way, a love for each other, but not as, you know, lovers. It's it's hard to explain, but you know what I'm saying. Well, I guess she has to feel safe with Carlos. Yeah. And that was the idea of that. I just hope this doesn't become a trend. Uh, I think Kira, yes, 
they're on the right track of making her character more emotion, more emotional. Kind of reminding us, yes, she's not a robot. Right. Gum, I think I think that's good, and I think that's important. I just don't want them to get carried away with thinking they need to do that through her crying and having mental breakdowns. Because, I mean, it's fine here, and it was fine for these two episodes. I get it, but I don't want to tread on that. I think how you need to make her more personable now is by having her make wisecracks every once in a while. Um, and, make her like Olivia Dunham. Right, and form deeper relationships with the characters around her. Yeah. You know, have her have romantic feelings and some other stuff come out that we haven't seen her have before. God, we're getting there. The character improves every week. God, they do have a great actress in Rachel Nichols. God, they just, you know, need to make sure that they're not using her in ways that makes her character look weak. I mean, we need the toughest nails female cop on this show. God, I think a great resource for them to look at for how they can do things is come the character of Kate Beckett on Castle. How they handle her toughness and stuff in a way that gives her a sense of vulnerability, but also makes her a toughest nails character that you know. If you're going to get in a nasty situation, come you feel safe with her. So if yeah. they do that, the Kira, they're in really good shape. And I think, I agree. yeah, because I think they're going to get there. It's just you know, we're we're in we're in that period, first second season, where not everything has been nailed down yet, but continues making good progress. Well, and that's the thing with season two. Well, well, season two is in general, and Lou and I have talked about this many times. Yeah. Season two is really the season that sets the tone for the series. Season one sets it all up, the characters, uh, right. mission, the even the storyline, whatever. But season two is really what sets the tone for the rest of the series. Right. And I think that's what this, this season is definitely doing. And these last few episodes have definitely done a very good job at it, especially the premiere. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's... First season is putting all the pieces on the table, and season two is the opportunity to play and work with all the pieces. Yeah, which is why we're getting so much more character depth this season compared to the first season, because now everything's in place they can work with and move around, play with things, come in the setup that they have. So, um, again, I like the episode. A lot of people really enjoyed it. We're glad finally that Carlos knows what the heck is going on because. This means the show will be moving on quite a bit. And will be a lot more fun. All right. So now that uh, Michael's left us for the week, we're going to go to the Airways Rundown section. You're watching CBS. Sci-Fi's Pope from Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. EMT. We know drama. Where we're going to talk about this episode of Defiance that was kind of a head scratcher and may leave us debating some things. We'll see. Yeah, let's move into that season one finale entitled Everything is Broken. While defiant citizens cast their votes for mayor, Carissa must decide whether to accept her destiny. Nolan faces his past. It seems only fitting that Defiance, a show that has alternately frustrated and pleased me on an episode-by-episode basis, managed to distill that experience in its season one finale. On the one hand, I'm rather excited by the narrative possibilities of the Earthwrap control of Defiance and an insurgency to win back the town that will inevitably be the plot of season two. On the other hand, I was less than thrilled about pretty much everything else that happened in the episode. Thank you. 
This episode was true to its title, as everything really did begin to break down in the town of Defiance this week. The two-pronged conflict carried over from last week. On one hand, Amanda Rosewater fought a losing battle to retain her position as mayor against the ruthless Daytac Tar. On the other, Arissa dealt with the after-effects of Doc Yule's experimentation and what it meant as far as her mysterious destiny. And there were various related conflicts mixed in between, whether it was Stama's attempts to salvage her marriage or the Earth Republic's impending takeover of the city. It was nothing if not an eventful conclusion to the season. I think we can still all agree that the Golden Pretzel slash Kelevar its real name, and Kazaziri, the glowing orb in the chasm, plot was sort of a waste. Well, in a sense, through that story arc, we learned more about Orissa, the Arathian culture, and the species' struggles to assimilate into a post-Pale Wars Earth. There's value in that, and as it was tied to a, a character, mainly Orissa, so it made the stakes personal and still provided a sense of Defiance's story world, thus giving it a macro or worldwide impact. But I can't help but feel like the whole thing was built up narratively so as to provide the episode with a way to undo the major and show-changing death of Nolan via magic, while still carrying through with the less show-changing, more predictable sacrifice slash apparent death of Arissa, though none of us actually believe she is dead or gone. I only suggest this because it doesn't seem like anything horrible happened as a result of Arissa jumping into the Kaziri, apart from her becoming Irzu's weapon, whatever that may mean as the show goes forward. So the whole plot seemed built to cancel out Nolan's death, such that the finale could have that shocking twist of a finale without having to actually deal with the said twist. Like I said, a giant waste of time. Yeah. Luckily, the episode didn't waste much time drawing out the results of the mayoral election. Daytech quickly emerged as the winner, and the conflict shifted more towards Daytech's losing battle to maintain control and respect as the Earth rep colonel turned him into little more than a figurehead on the eve of his election. As a result, he reacted poorly to being disrespected by a filthy human. A major issue I had with this episode was that the E-Rep characters were almost too fiendishly evil here, especially Black Jonah with his very Nazi-esque uniform, Luger pistol, and genocidal temperament. He just needed a mustache to twirl. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Ultimately, we were spared a closing montage cover song this week. So that was worth rejoicing about. But the idea of setting up the Earth Republic as the occupation force within Defiance and all the characters from this season banding together to raise and sustain a resistance movement slash insurgency to ultimately win back the town will be the thing I am most looking forward to next season. So Dan, I was not thrilled with this episode, but must admit that it set up some good plot points for next season. But somehow I think you were not nearly as forgiving as I was about this episode. Am I correct? And what exactly were your feelings about about this episode. Well, I first thought the penultimate episode was much better, except for the music at the end. Okay. That was bad. But I just thought that had a lot more of the breakdown for all the characters and and um, just put them through a lot more conflicts. This felt like pretty straightforward to, you know, the ending part where Arissa dropped whatever that was down that big hole. Like, that was the main focus of the episode. Again, all the focus went on there, and I felt some characters were dropped off to the, the wayside. Julie Benz as Mayor Rosewater has been totally underused this whole season, and her having one scene was not cool. Right. Stama, they haven't ironed down her character as well as they should. You know, her personality goes all over the place. Where, you know, I, I thought earlier this season, especially in that one episode, where Nolan calls her out and says, go, oh, you're the most dangerous one here. I shouldn't worry about Daytac. I mean, I felt she was in control. She was in charge of the whole situation. Because Daytac was almost her rabid dog. Yeah. 
And here it seems like Daytech has the upper hand now. And I think you got to make a decision who is on top, who's top dog. Because here it almost seems like she's afraid of Daytech. Yeah, I, I think they're going to, their power struggle is going to, in their marriage, is going to be evened out by what happened in the end with him killing the, okay. the colonel. And I think she's going to help him get out of whatever happens. Okay. Well, if that happens and, and it's there, that's fine. Yeah. But it, but that needs to be figured out. Is Kenya dead? I don't know. I really don't. I was going to ask you the same question. I think she may have been not killed, but like she passed out from the poison, put on a transport out of town or something like that or she may have just been killed but it seems like such a unceremoniously unceremonious yeah. end to her that was that and the other thing was just how Rafe just got taken down off camera yeah but I don't think he's dead is he no but I just I just thought we should have seen more of a fight oh yeah that was that was the only thing about that because I mean he's supposed to be you know one of the big tough forces in the town and he just kind of I mean we didn't get to see any of that I mean he's not going to give up his minds without a fight because there should have been more of a fight for the minds again I think we'll see that at the beginning of next season or as we move forward to next season but still that was there and then i just thought the arisa stuff some of the mystical tribal stuff gets a little um too much yeah i think they just push it too far like with her seeing the other like clone version of herself and things like that it just was too out there i thought I, okay. I, I think with the sci-fi you need to get away from the, the mystical and more stay on the plane of this is the future and there's aliens here and they're trying to you know fit in with the culture and stuff i think more of the race stuff and some of those conflicts are much more interesting than the spiritual stuff um and they can do the spiritual stuff but just make it less weird okay and i, I don't know did you like the stuff or no i mean i've been struggling with that whole aspect of the story all season yeah and it didn't make it any better in this this episode. So in reality, I, I could have done without <laughs> the whole, you know, aspect of the story arc. But I, I think they started it, so they had to kind of go with it. So we'll see if now that she's jumped into the pit, whether some of that stuff is maybe changed in season two, the new writers come in and maybe perfect it or at least make it better. I, I think we're going to see some of the things that plague season one maybe cleaned up in season two. And that's what I'm hoping for, at least. Right. Well, and just, that, that might be one of the aspects that they, they toy with. Well, I'm just saying our good, our good friend of the podcast, Brian Q. Miller, is going to have his work cut out for him. <laughs> come this summer trying to figure out and fix some of this stuff and the one advice i'd give them again i know nothing i've not worked in the writer's room i went to school to learn how to do that stuff but i've not actually worked there and been on the front lines yet but i really think they need to make defiant stand on its own two feet to be its own thing because a lot of it seems to be it's when you watch the show you're just like oh that's like what they did on eureka you know that's like um, what they did on battlestar galactica I mean, even next season with the Earth uh, story and them coming in and taking over the city, that's a lot like early season three of Battlestar Galactica with the Resistance stuff. Yeah, I think it's going to have a longer run than they did on Battlestar. So yeah. I think that that's going to give it some some uniqueness. And it's going to be very similar to Falling Skies in the struggle against an oppressive group. Right. But I think it'll be better than that because, n not better than the show in general, but better than 
than like just being a copy of Falling Skies because I think it's going to be sort of a resistance against a human oppressor and right. it'll be interesting. So I do think it's going to be a little bit on its own in that sense. So I'm l- really looking forward to that plot line next season. Right. I am really thinking that the town solidifying in a single goal against the Earth Republic will be what makes this show better because it will bring them all together against a common enemy and that'll be a very good thing and we'll see these characters like Daytac and Rafe who have were once allies then became bitter enemies and now are going to have to be allies again I think that's going to make some interesting right. character development in the second season and I think a lot of fun stuff to play with right and that's what I'm saying that's what they need to do they need to make the show their own yeah that based on what other people are doing Exactly. And I think the best way to do that is doing what you said. We're playing up, you know, the race car. Having the aliens and the humans work together to stop this oppressing force. Which I think mainly should be human with the Earth government. And and, and maybe, you know, have, I guess, what what is what is Doc Yule? What do they call them? Arathians? No, no, she is a indigent. Indigent. So, like, you could have the indigents here and there be with them because they seem like shady characters. Yeah. Or you can have certain aliens selling themselves out to, you know, the Earth government. But I, I think they should mainly be run by human characters. I just think that's most interesting. This is kind of like X-Men with aliens. And I think that's what makes this show unique. And they need to go with that. Got to roll with that concept. And okay. I, I think Wraith and Daytac is the way to go. I, I want to see their falling out. And I want to see them, I guess, combining forces again. I think that'll be quite fascinating. And, and, and again, where Nolan lays and all of that. And, you know how is how he's going to react to being resurrected by Arissa because yeah. he didn't believe in a lot of this stuff and now he kind of has a pretty good example that says it's real so that'll be interesting, but I, I really think the main conflict needs to stay with the EarthGov and, the, you know, the, the racism, or I guess the xenophobia that's going on. I think that's the best way to go and, and pull back on the mystical stuff because I think it weirds people out. Yeah, but, okay. But for a first season, they laid down a good foundation, but there is some still a lot of work to do. So you ready to move on to Burn Notice? Yeah, let's go ahead. All right, let's talk about the Burn Notice episode now. Exit plan. My name is Michael Weston. I used to be a spy. After Burke's death, Michael helps Sonia. They are trying to get out of Cuba, but there's a new enemy, Colonel Oksana, who wants to capture them badly. This week's episode of Burn Notice cupped up with this season's track record of not feeling like filler. But that did not keep this episode from feeling like a retread of last season's Escape from Panama episode. Although in this escape from Cuba, Michael and his team had to avoid the dreaded Russians, who got a face put on their hatred towards Michael, thanks to the presence of a new enemy named Colonel Aksada that was a sexy femme fatale, but also had the stoic, stone-cold look of a good Russian villain from an 80s action movie. Basically, just think hot female version of Dolph Lundgren, and that's Aksada's character. And if I were Sam Mendes, I would cast this actress immediately in Bond 24 because she would fit perfectly as a female villain within 007's world. As for the other big female character introduced to this episode, the super spy Sonia, played by one of Nico's favorite actresses, Colonna Tall, I couldn't get past the character's backstory about being the Russia's answer to Michael Weston for making her feel like a poor man's version of Fiona. It was like the writer of this episode needed a female presence in this escape from Cuba, because since the Fiona story 
with having a new boyfriend keeps her in Miami. They had to invent this Sonya character to fill the void left open on Michael's team. Again, there were a few notable differences between Sonya and Fiona, because Sonya is much more cautious and concerned about covering her tracks on a mission, where Fiona would just run in guns blazing. Also, Sonya giving Michael a hard time about only killing unless it's absolutely necessary seems to indicate she wants to bring out the cold-hearted spy within him, throwing more fuel come Michael's character conflict throughout this final season, with being in a tug-of-war between life as a spy or giving it all up to live a civilian life with Fiona. Again, I think the problem of Sonya feeling like a Fiona replacement is going to be resolved, because they both are going to be acting as a part of Michael's team now that he has returned to Miami. But I've got to say, it's about time Michael got back to his home turf, because Miami is where the show started. Because it's where it needs to end. Also, this will give Bird Notice the opportunity to play up the nostalgia factor come a final season by revisiting all the memorable, unlikely allies and shady villains from this show's history who are still alive at this point. However, don't think this trip back down memory lane is going to be all fun and games because Fiona and Sonya crossing paths will resolve the story issues I had with this episode but also set up a love triangle between Michael, Fiona, and Sonya that I think is going to make things even more difficult with Fiona and Michael getting back together for a little while, especially once he discovers Fiona agreed to inform God him to the CIA in exchange for getting to run off with her new boyfriend. And that's where I think Fiona's relationship with her new boyfriend, Carlos, is going to unravel, because he may try to set up Michael to be killed by the bad guys this season with the intent of stopping Fiona from constantly getting sucked back into Michael's life. Because obviously when Fiona talked to him that she needed to stay in Miami and kind of resolve everything with Michael, he was pretty upset with that and I think he's going to end up holding quite a grudge towards Michael, which I think is going to increase as this season keeps going forward and now that Michael's back in Miami. As for the end of Michael's relationship with Sonia, which I think will also happen down the road. I just think Michael is going to connect with his brother's orphan son, making him choose a normal life, getting Sonia's attraction towards Michael. However, I still foresee Sonia ending up with Jesse, as his fear of her from stories about a Russian super spy he heard while training at Langley is pretty hilarious. Could I think could make some fun flirtation scenes between these two characters in the future. So with those predictions now on the table, I'd say be ready for some romance and betrayal, along with the usual shooting and explosions, because the thrill ride notice bird notices final season continues over the next several weeks. All right, well, now that we've got done tackling that Russian battling episode of Burn Notice, let's talk now about Under the Dome with the episode Manhunt. Let's 
Joe ends up holding a party at his home where the town's teenagers gather to enjoy one of the few generators in town after the power goes out. Meanwhile, Barbie and Big Jim search for Paul after he escapes custody. Gun Jr. looks for a way out of Chester's mill. So this is what I'd call a sharp decline. Things sloped downward last week after the premiere, but the second episode of the series is usually, eh, meh. Especially when the pilot episode more or less was awesome. But this episode, Manhunt, was boring and focused on things that were not interesting in the slightest bit. And I think the fact that each episode is taking place over the course of of a single day is already beginning to take its toll on the series. Because we're in day three now, and things are moving slowly and sort of stupidly. Well, at least the people are acting stupidly. Also, the people in Chester's Mill just aren't freaking out enough about the dome. In fact, this week, more than before, the dome seemed totally unimportant to most characters. And things weren't bad enough for the citizens for there to be any crisis to care about or any characters freaking out at all. As in this week, when Julia and Dale were casually walking down the street, others were casually out for a stroll as well, and an old couple walked arm in arm just down the street again. There was a person walking their dog even, as if nothing terrible had been or was currently going on in the town of Chester's Mill. And no, actually mentioning the Simpsons movie Dome plot on the show doesn't beat the internet at its own game, it just makes the town's dome seem even less threatening here. Another thing, all the teenage scenes are bad, and I mean Sharknado level bad. Sure, Ben's bro vocabulary is grating, but all the kids on the show are head-scratchingly inept. Plus, there was that one scene when Nori tried to cover up the fact that she said my mom's to Joe by saying it was slang. You know, like my mom's, my pop's. Ugh, it was so bad. I despise this character already, and these changes this week they made with the character are making her even worse. And I suppose I could get on all of the teens' cases for not caring about the dire dome situation, but since the adults aren't much better about caring, how can I blame the teens? Besides, this is pretty standard for teens in a crisis situation like this. The world is ending, let's throw a party, get trashed, and have as much sex as we can before it all ends. That's pretty standard fare for teens in a disaster movie. Okay, let's get to some of the plot stuff. Paul ambushed Linda this week and escaped into the woods, causing Big Jim to organize a search party. But we never found out what Paul wanted to do. Sure, he's unhinged, but if the show had made it so he was off to do something hazardous or something that would put everyone in danger, then I think it would have cared a little bit more about him being caught. Because as it was, I didn't care if he took guns and went into the woods. The idea here, though, was for Barbie and Jim to puff out their chests a bit and also to bond a little bit. Jim's story about the football player he crippled was a little bit creepy, but also it was good storytelling. But what was it with all these characters sharing so much with other characters they hardly knew this week? Because on the same episode, Julia told Junior all about her scandalous past. I mean, if you're going to tell somebody Junior? Come on. Right when it seemed like she and Barbie were getting into the sharing point in their relationship, she goes and goes off on that adventure with Junior. It just didn't make sense. And then by the end of the episode, Barbie and Julia meet back up with their two respective weirdos, the father and son duo of Big Jim and Junior, and wound up feeling awkward around each other. It just seemed like a weird change of dynamic and felt awful forced in the episode. All of this was a shame. The pilot held promise and the second episode didn't fall off too much from that high. The show as a whole is an exciting premise and I'm still looking forward to getting to know the characters more, but this third episode was a weak effort that left me and the ratings wondering what were they thinking. Let's hope for better next week. 
As I mentioned, the numbers seem to be steadying out, not quite as high as the premiere, but still decent numbers, and I am still loving this story, so I can't wait to talk about it next week. But for now, we're going to move into the voicemail section. A call has been forwarded. For, 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. Tone. Please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. This week, Wu left us a great voicemail about the new Joss Whedon Shakespearean film, Much Ado About Nothing. Without further ado, here's Wu. Hey, Nico and Dan, it's your old buddy Wu S. Kim. I normally don't do this. I normally don't do movie reviews. But since Andy, Nico, Dan, and myself are big, 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 one more time, big Joss Whedon fans, other than the Avengers, that's right, Michael, um, I figured I'd do a little quick movie review on Much Ado About Nothing. I'm not going to leave many spoilers uh, because quite honestly almost everybody I know has read or done, uh, done scenes from Much Ado About Nothing. This is more about everybody's performance in the movie. But before I get into that, a little bit of a sidebar for you. I told this to Andy Papak on either Uvu or Skype about the about my experience watching the movie, I was the only guy in the theater, and I was the only guy under 30 in the theater. Everybody else was either a female by herself or a older couple going on a date. I felt really awkward being the only person under 30, and the only person under 30 who was a male. So, now that that little piece of embarrassment is out of the way, I'll talk about the movie. Overall, I thought everybody, again, did fantastic. Part of the humor of the movie to me, and really, if you're not a Joss Whedon fan, if you're not, if you've not watched Angel, if you've not watched Buffy, if you've not watched Dollhouse, if you've not watched Firefly, you're not going to get a lot of these re references and, uh, and a lot of the jokes. Well, maybe not references, but again, most of the humor of the movie comes from the fact that it's, you know, Agent Coulson from S.H.I.E.L.D. doing the dialogue, or that it's Wesley and Fred in scenes together, or the fact that it's Malcolm Reynolds as a cop. Um, I will say this though, this is a bit of a spoiler. Um, for those of you, for those of you who who are familiar with the play and the main villain John John the Bastard, and yes, that is his technical name in the play. He's played by Sean Marr, aka Simon Tam. Sean Marr, up until this point, has only played like really nice guys for the most part. I've seen him in. Granted, I've only seen him in Firefly, but he did such a good job as a villain in this movie. I thought he, his performance was really genuine because it really didn't feel like he was putting on a performance. It didn't feel like Simon, T Simon Tam playing John the Bastard. It was really, it was really Sean Marr playing a, a character that we hadn't really seen him in before. I think that was the standout performance to me. Again, everybody did uh, such a fantastic job. I'm sorry I'm repeating myself, but I don't think that can be I don't think that can be emphasized enough. There is a, a couple cameos by the creators of Shield, um Marissa and Jed Whedon, Joss's brother and sister-in-law. Marissa actually sings a couple songs in the movie and she has a fantastic voice. 
I think the best part of the movie for me, and and it's supposed to be that way, even though Much Ado About Nothing really centers around the character of Hero, played by a background actress on the Avengers. I can't think of her name right off the top of my head. I'm not in front of my computer web browser right now. But she, even though the story is mainly about Hero, it really is about the two characters played by Amy Acker and Alexis Denisov. And Amy Acker does a fantastic job of playing all kinds of different characters in this movie. From vulnerable and sad to head in the clouds in love to serious, to serious and direct. She really plays the gamut of emotions, pretty much like she did in the the fifth and final season of Angel when she played Fred and Illyria. I thought she did. I thought overall acting wise, I thought she did the most great performance. It wasn't a shocking performance, but it shows it shows to me once again why everybody I know is in love with Amy Acker. Not only is she lovely, but she can act her butt off. And Alexis Denisov as the male lead. I have to say. We saw a little bit about this in the episode Spin the Bottle from Season 4 of Angel. Um, Alexis Denisov's ability to really ham it up and really play the comedy. In this, he is snarky. He is self-centered. He is goofy. You cannot not laugh at this guy when you're watching him. He's just that good. Um, one last thing, Nathan Fillion plays a cop like I mentioned before. He really is playing a mixture of Castle and Malcolm Reynolds from Firefly. I really got that vibe from him. His assistant is Tom Link, a.k.a. Andrew from the seventh season and sixth season of Buffy. I really love both of their performances. Unfortunately, this movie, because it's kind of like an independent movie, because Joss, says, Joss Whedon said in many interviews, he literally shot this movie at his house like the weekend after he, he finished filming on the Avengers, literally emailed and Skyped everybody and asked them if they wanted to do this movie over a weekend or at least oh, or at least a couple of weeks, maybe two weeks. I can't remember off the top of my head. But literally, it does look like he shot this very simple, very simple, very basic, and a lot of the actors will have said the same thing. It really did feel like a house party or a dinner party shooting this movie. You can tell the cast did a really a real good time shooting this movie. Overall, this movie was fantastic to watch. Not only as a as a Joss Whedon fan, but also a Shakespeare fan. A, li a couple of notes. If you're not really familiar with Joss Whedon other than the Avengers, you're probably not going to like this movie. Again, a lot of the humor comes from the fact that it is the people that are playing the characters, not necessarily the characters themselves, even though the characters are really funny in the play. Because of the limited release of this movie, because I live in Los Angeles as well as Nico does, and even in Los Angeles, this movie played in limited release. It was kind of difficult to find even on Fandango. But I, I'm, I'm more than confident that this movie will be released on iTunes. It will be released on Blu-ray for everyone to watch with a, 
with a bunch of special features because Joss Whedon loves to do commentaries and he loves to do special features. Overall, I give it a 5 out of 5. Again, if you like Shakespeare, if you like Joss Whedon, do yourself a favor and download this movie on iTunes when it comes out or, or get the Blu-ray or DVD copy. Well, I'll talk to you guys later. I don't know when I'm going to be on across the airwaves next with the Goodwin Games ending, but hopefully I'll be back soon. Bye, guys. Thanks, Wu, again for your great comments on the film this week. We look forward to hearing from you and maybe some of our other listeners again next week, so we'll have some comments to play in the voicemail section. Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call us at 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback on the episode. Hope to hear from some of you soon. For sure. All right. Well, now with that great voicemail from Wu out of the way, which we thank him for, and we're glad to see that he's following up on all the great work Joss Whedon does. We're going to move on to the closing now. So, Nico, you want to take it away with what we're doing next week? It's going to be a little different because I'm not going to be around, but we'll go from there. Yeah, on next week's episode, the TV schedule continues with what will be the remainder of our summer schedule as we will continue our coverage of Falling Skies with a potential special guest and continue them while Dan is on vacation. We will also round things out with another Airways Rundown section featuring our brief thoughts on Under the Dome, but no final season of Burn Notice review next week since Dan will be on vacation, but he will have two reviews when he returns and maybe we'll even cover some more stuff next week as well. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com. Yeah, guys, and we're going to have a shorter episode for you next week, but that does not mean our podcast is going to not have content coming your way. As Comic-Con is coming up, it's going to happen this weekend, and we want you guys to follow our website, Twitter, Facebook, and Google+, as it's going to be just avalanched with news about everything that's going on at Comic-Con and photos of Andy and Nico during their experiences at Comic-Con. So there's going to be all kinds of Comic-Con constant coming your way on AcrossTheAirways.com, as well as our Twitter, Facebook, and Google+. So if you want to stay updated on Comic-Con, check that out. And then when I return from vacation, we will be doing our annual ATA Comic-Con episode, where Nico and I discuss all the big news that got us excited that um, comes out of Comic-Con. And also, if you'd like, you could check out our spinoff podcast. We've got It's Tangent Time, which is a show hosted by Michael and Wu. And they basically, if there's an entertainment topic that catches their attention, they basically choose to talk about it on the podcast. So I would say they might do it in It's Tangent Time on some news to come out of Comic-Con, or just Comic-Con news in general. So you'll get their perspective on everything that's coming out of Comic-Con, probably in the next episode of that show. We also have Across the Airwaves DC Nation podcast. And that right now is on hiatus, but it will be back to start covering episodes of the new Cartoon Network animated series, Beware the Batman. And also, we're going to have a special episode of the Across the Airways DC Nation podcast to discuss all the news that DC Comics is going to announce about their future films and projects at Comic-Con. So we'll keep you updated on all all that for there. And also, we, on our next episode, will be recapping all the Smallville Season 11 issues that we need to catch up on. Also, we have ATA Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which right now is on hiatus, but we'll have an episode coming very soon where Michael and Wu are going to cover the Arrow panel that takes place at Comic-Con. So keep an eye out for that as well. 
Also, if you'd like, you can contact us by visiting our newly updated and improved website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. And there you can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. You can also click the button on our page to like our Facebook. And through doing that, you will stay updated on our podcast episode releases and also be able to follow all the entertainment news that Nico reports on during our Across the Airwaves episodes. And for that same information, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter is Across the Airwaves. There's no the on there. It's just Across the Airwaves. Or you can join our circle on Google+. Also, if you'd like, you can leave us a voicemail. Okay, what number can you call to do that, Nico? 773-809-3363. And with that, you can give us your thoughts or feedback on any of the shows we cover or our podcast in general. So uh, if you're interested, do that. Also, if you'd like, you can check out our YouTube channel, which features previews and promos for all sorts of Across the Airwaves events, as well as upcoming movies. Also available on our YouTube channel is a playlist of the DC Nation shorts that is shown during the Saturday morning programming block on Cartoon Network. Also, if you don't want to go back through this podcast to listen to all the ways you could contact us, you can download our podcast box app, which will let you contact our podcast and listen to our podcast episodes on your iPad and iPhone. And if you're on an Android or Windows device, you can download our Android app from the Amazon Marketplace to get that same content. So again, that's our podcast episode and ways you can contact us. So, once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Lou Kim, and Andy Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Rustic. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airways. See everybody, have a great week. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.